Good evening. I'm Carlo Gabler, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Irish Cultural Centre's Digital Literary Festival. The centre is based in Hammersmith, London, and for the last 25 years, it has delivered to its patrons the most diverse Irish cultural and educational programme outside Ireland. The festival comprises a series of interviews featuring some of the most successful authors in contemporary Irish writing. They will be discussing their work with me and others, and they will also be reading some of them from their recent publications. Launching the festival, my interview is with somebody, with a gentleman I've known and admired for many, many years. Decades. Yes, I, I'm trying to remember. Yes, I know who it was, who I was first alerted to you by my friend, Sarah Hislop, who was a nurse, an Irish, she's from Coal Island. And I remember her coming to me one day and she said, this is a long time ago. We won't describe how many years ago. She said, there's this bloke, Roddy Doyle. You just have to read him. And funnily enough, her husband was here visiting only the night before last. That's how it came into my mind. But enough of me. Let's start off by talking about where do you come from? Who are you? Who are your parents? <laughs> just, just, just tell me that. Well, I'm sitting in, the, in my office, an attic, in mm -hmm. my house in Clontarf in North Dublin. And I come from four miles away, further north, a suburb called Kilbarrick. It's on the coast, so it's northeast Dublin. Um, when I was a child, it was the landscape of Paddy Clark, ha, ha, ha. It was, uh, there was a housing estate and then there was farms. And um, somewhere when I was around eight or nine, the farms were bought up by the city council and by uh, private developers and those farms became building sites. So for a big chunk of my childhood and teen years, basically I lived on a building site, really, you know? It was amazing. The change in perspective. Uh, I'll never forget. It would have happened anyway, I think, because I was growing up. So the, the way you see the world changes. But there was a, people who uh, travel on the train from uh, Dublin to Belfast and back would be familiar with the station called Holt Junction. And Holt Junction was actually very, very close to my house. But I didn't really know that. I knew it was the train station, but I didn't know how near it was until I came home from school. This would have been primary school one day. And about three doors down from our house, basically the road stopped being a road and became a country lane. But in that day, during that day, the hedges on either side of the lane had been kind of knocked sideways. And I could see the station. I could see mm -hmm. it from, you know, I could see it from my front gate. And it was only over there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so that's, and then, you know, by the time I was uh, then 21 and I had just graduated from UCD, University College Dublin, and was looking for, I decided for want of anything else to do, I'd do the year long certificate in, um, or diploma in secondary teaching. 
and I needed a school to go to. And there was a brand new school bang in the middle of this new housing estate that had been built while I was growing up. And I went up there and I got a place and I ended up teaching there for 15, for 14 years. Um, just as you know, that old phrase, the school around the corner. But when I started, it was the school around the corner. I didn't go to it myself because it didn't exist when I went to school. Mm-hmm. And it was new in the middle of this new estate in an area that actually, you know, was until about a decade before that quite rural. Um, so that's the, and beside the sea. So that's the, the, that's the, um, the geography of my childhood. And in a way, although I live near the city centre now, it remains the geography of my life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, my father when I was a very young child, was a printer, a compositor. Then he was a teacher of compositing. And then uh, he ended up being in a, you know, a semi-state organization that coordinated the training of apprentices. And that's where, you know, that's where he was for the rest of his working life. My mother uh, had been a secretary, but had to give up work when she got married. And so she was at home uh, rearing the four of us, the four of my, myself and my three siblings. And then when I was in secondary school, she went back to work. Mm. So she was a secretary then as well. So mm. I think I'm, I, you, you asked me one of those horrible three questions in one. I think I'm yeah. Going, yeah, and you did, you, what a, you've been brilliant. I've had an okay, yeah. Yeah, no, no, 11 out of 10. No, um, one of the things that strikes me about the answer that you've just given is how culturally, topographically, geographically, socially exact you are. Mm. And you're, you're embedded into an, a, a Dublin and an Ireland, and this is reflected in all your books and particularly in your new novel, Love, which we will move, come on to in a moment. You're... you're, you're you were the witness to the way Ireland moved from free statery, although you were born after the establishment of the Republic, mm-hmm. to what we have now, which is Ireland. And I mean, Dublin is a modern European city. Uh-huh. And you've, you've, you've witnessed that, but also you're very alert to the things that are part of that. I try to be, yeah. Uh, when I started writing, I suppose I gradually became aware of that that's in fact the case, that I, in a way, had been observing the changes. And um, my, I think it was part of the way my head works in that I can be very precise. Like my thinking is full of corners. <laughs> so when I'm... Um, I think in terms, if I'm watching a film and something happens that just seems a bit too neat and tidy, it annoys me. Mm-hmm. You know, it annoys me. A little bit more effort. I went to see Tenet there recently. You know, it's such a treat to be in a cinema for a start. But the effortless way that the central character got from Eastern Europe to Bombay annoyed me. And I know it was... Um, you know, part of the storytelling, but it just seemed to, in a way, undermine the basic story that there was no effort involved. But 
I would have much preferred even a very brief scene of him um, going into or out of an airport just mm -hmm. to establish that that and on a micro level I think that's the way my head works when I'm working if there's a character in a kitchen and the character ends up in the bedroom fine we don't need to see them going up the stairs but in a way I have to know that they he or she did go up the stairs and mm -hmm. I think my knowledge of Dublin is somewhat the same and my knowledge of the lives is somewhat the same. I don't know if this makes sense because it's only become really, I suppose, um, I was planning a treatment for a possible film recently and that's the way I was thinking all the time, right the way through it. How did this character get from there to there? How did this character through life get to this position? You know, so it's all, it all seems to me to be the same thing, really. I hate the phrase that as it's been used again and again and again now, the journey. But it seems to me that that's the way I think. And I think, as you said, Ireland, Dublin is a modern European city. This is true. But I, 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 it's almost like I could map backwards 40 years odd to when it wasn't a modern European city. And I'd like, in my own personal history, pinpoint moments when it struck me as being, oh, this is new or this wasn't here before or this was a way of looking at things that we've never had before you know and that there's a new layer now added in this sort of pandemic world um it seems to me that dublin's geography i've, I've been into the city center quite a bit and it seems to me that without anything crumbling and being rebuilt that the shape of the city seems to be changing again you know and I, in many ways, I'm talking about the human contents and where there are crowds and where there aren't crowds and what parts of the city now seem desolate because there's virtually nobody on them mm -hmm. and what parts of the city seem um, reassuringly uh, the same. Am I making sense? Well, so, I was, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the way when I sit down to work, that's the way my head is operating, really, and how to get that from there onto the page. One of the things that uh, strikes me about all of the books of yours that you've read is that the concretize, the concretization, I'm talking like a polytechnic lecturer now, I've got leather elbows, um, is, is, is completely thought through. So it's not just, well, how long does the bus take to get you from Malahide to O'Connell yeah. Street forever? And you will know, even if you don't tell us, we, the reader, know that you know, and it's yeah. cool. You've, that's, that's a fact that we can rely upon. But that kind of concretization also extends to, which we might come on to discuss, the punctuation. It's yeah. absolutely there to make certain there's no error. Here is what they say, now they stop, here is what they think, yeah. here's some more. All of that is yeah. really um, yeah. recondite. That's where I think a lot of the labour comes in, if you like, a lot of the time <laughs> I spend writing. I, I'm, I'm always pleased when I read or somebody says it looks effortless, you know, you must have had great fun when you were doing that, you know. It's, it's never effortless. And <laughs> I don't have much time for the word fun, but um, it's satisfying when, I, when it's done and I'm happy with it, or at least I'm content that I've done as much as I possibly can. But 
it, it, you go, I go over it again and again and again. And it seems as I get older, because um, I'm less confident asserting anything, you know, mm -hmm. I'm happy, happy, less confident making any hesitancies and uh, gaps in utterances become quite vital and uh, part of our articulate way of, you know, transferring opinions and emotions and information from one person to another. So I started off with dashes when I started writing the commitments. There's a dash at the beginning of every utterance. And now I interrupt the, the utterances with dashes. Yeah. The dashes seem to be, there seem to be more dashes per pound than there used to be. Yes. Whether that's because, I think it's because I'm, uh, because I'm writing more generally about older people, perhaps, and the conversations tend to be different, but it just seems to me uh, a, a, a good way of approaching, trying to capture spoke, the spoken word on the page. But each dash is a decision because I'm, I overwrite it first when I start. I, I write down too much and then I start paring it away, you know. And um, hopefully then by the time I've done that and I've gone over it and probably added bits that I shouldn't have thrown away in the first place, um, it is something that is uh, readable for a start. And that compromise between accuracy and readability. But also that you know, without you needing to read it, or sometimes without me reading, needing to read it, I, when I drop a couple of characters into a conversation, I know where they've come from. I don't need to write it down. I know what they were thinking before the conversation started. I know that dash represents a hesitancy, and I know why the character is hesitating. Mm. And then I know perhaps what's going through the head of the person who's waiting for that person to continue, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I leave loads of gaps uh, deliberately because I think as a reader myself, you want them. You want to occupy the book yourself. You don't want to be told everything. But I know personally what, would, what I'd fill those gaps with if I was a different kind of writer. If we, if we turn to Love, your new book, mm -hmm your excellent new book. It, it brings together two of the things we've been talking about. One, it's a book that in the back, although it's set now, now-ish, and it has two gentlemen, two men talking over a, an evening, a night, and an early morning, through what one of them tells us, or both of them tell us, but particularly the character, Davy, David tells us, we get the history of Ireland and Dublin. Mm -hmm. We get the way the country has changed, the way we get something really sociologically exact about how young men who listened to the Ramones and loved Sheena was a punk rocker, end up as men with um, good cars, decent mortgages, maybe a couple of foreign holidays a year, who knows? You know, you get that. The other thing, because of the punctuation that we were talking about when we, what we touched on when talking about punctuation is the book is about the nebulous nature of certainty. Mm. People know and don't know, or they know a bit, but there are other bits that have slipped or they're not quite clear about. 
So it, 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 it's, a, it's a really exact book about inexactitude as a human condition. And it's a really exact book about class and Dublin men in particular and what's happened. So shall we tell us a little bit about, just briefly about Joe and David or Davy? Does he like to be called Davy or is he, is he well, happy with David? He was in the company of Joe, he's Davy. Yeah. Because that's what he was when they were in school. Yeah. So that's his name. I, my closest friends call, actually they call me Rory. <laughs> Going back to my teenage years. Yeah, because you, know, you were Rory. Well, in the gang I was Rory. It started off as a joke. One of them heard my father's name was Rory and he, for some reason he thought it was hilarious. So they started calling me Rory and nobody knew it was a nickname because of course it's a name. Mm -hmm. it's a very common name here in Ireland. So in that small group of people I'm Rory. And uh, so Davy is Davy when he's with Joe. He's Dave or David when he's with his wife. Mm. And um, probably David when he's at work, you know. So there are two men hitting 50 or 60 rather. Mm -hmm. 50 was <laughs> yeah. three books ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and they've known each other since they were teenagers. And there was a point, there was a, a key year, perhaps maybe two, when in many ways, you could say that they shared the one life, you know, when they were around about 20, 21, 22, and they were inseparable. They were Tweedledum and Tweedledee really wandering Dublin and uh, becoming what they considered to be men and discovering the world of the Dublin pub and what that involved and what that entailed. And uh, they've gone their separate ways, really. One of them, literally, he now lives in Wantage in England. And uh, what a great name mm. for it, Wantage. Wantage, yeah. 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 Uh, so um, he comes home a couple of times a year to, say, look, to visit his father. And they meet up. And it used to be they'd go on the tear, they'd wander the city, hug, crawl, and Joe would add an extra day to the journey so he could recover before he went back to um, That is the first plane that has gone over my roof in about six months. Yeah, we're going back <laughs> to normal. It just happened to do it today. Yeah. Um, where was I? Yeah. So they used to do this pub crawl, and they kind of grew out of it, and now they meet for, you know, something to eat. And for some reason, this particular night, they go to a pub and another one and they get a taxi into town. And uh, in a way, they're going backwards into their youth. And I suppose no more than uh, I don't I don't like the, I don't like getting older. Uh, <laughs> but, Listen. you know, there are, you know, from a writing point of view, a research point of view, it's um, my first, I was thinking about it uh, just yesterday, actually. The first time I actually spoke to my publisher, Dan Franklin, who only recently retired and published, so he's published all 12 of my novels and other books as well. And the first time I spoke to him was in a house just up the road from where I, now, where I had a bed set, you know, one room, and it was a payphone in the hall. And um, I think several letters were exchanged to arrange for me to be in the house at a particular time and he would phone the payphone and I'd charge down the stairs and grab the phone before the guy who was nearest it would you know, answer. And um, this was how we communicated back then. 
and it seems it doesn't it's not all that long ago but you know press button a press button b mm. it's it's all it's 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 comical in many many ways but it's in a way it's material you know so that's what the, a huge advantage of writing from the point of view of characters who are the same age as myself really is that they carry so many stories and images with them you know and including um there's a point in the book towards the end of the book where Davy is trying to explain the, the world of pubs and the world of men as it would have been 40 years ago, lists off a whole string of Dublin streets. Mm. And anybody who knows the streets of Dublin or the pubs of Dublin will know that these are key streets, you know? Mm -hmm. And then he lists off all the pubs. Uh, and this is going back 40 years. But if I'm not mistaken, every one of those pubs, up until the pandemic, every one of those pubs was still there. Mm. And most of them were more or less as they were when these young men walked in the first time. Mm. So there's that, there's the huge difference in many, many ways. And then there's the, the, the continuity at the same time. So um, that's what I find satisfying about writing about uh, men or women of that vintage, that they bring so much with them, you know, that um, life isn't ahead of them. It's not so much that life is closing down either, because they're still vital people, but they bring so much, you know, with them, so much, um, so many different angles, you know, because they, the loss of parents, for example, you know, the camera angle of your life changes a bit. You, you're, uh, and these are men now who have lost or are losing their parents, you know, and uh, so the way they look at things, the way they judge things is different. And uh, so it's, it's kind of, they're still full of life. It's just a different kind of life, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Um, the the uh, difficulty of relying on the phone uh, also features in the novel. Uh, I mean, mm. David, Davy is, is phoned by Faye at work and an arrangement is made yeah. and that's it. Then he borrows his father's car, which he, he doesn't have a license to drive <laughs> and drives to see her. And all of that is, I mean, all of that is terrific. It's yeah, very, it's very- journey, It's a journey of 60 miles that takes hours and hours yeah. and hours because of mm. all the T-junctions and, you know, um, it's a journey now you could do in an hour. But mm. it's, uh, it's kind of no distance at all these days, but was a huge journey into the, the unknown. And he's going from Dublin, if you like, a city, to a place which is effectively one street. And mm. he's, I, mean, I was in a place that had a, uh, I was in a town that had a top and a bottom. You know? He says. <laughs> yeah, he, he'd never been it. He'd never been anywhere like that before. <laughs> One of the things in fiction is that, so we have these two men, they go to a pub, well, they, they, start, they start off eating, and then they go to a pub and then another pub, but they go into town and various things happen. And it's a very important night for David Davy. But in the course of their conversation, they go back to the events of their youth, and then yeah. to one particular night when, after a lot of complications, they go to a party in a house where they meet people and have experiences. And 
the consequences of that party are now alive and yeah. in their lives 40 years later. What I liked about this book is we're very interested in the wellsprings of behavior, but usually we connect them to trauma. And you've connected them to confusion. And I'm not quite certain, but yeah. it's to do with their relationship with women and the consequences of their relationship with women. We don't want to give away too much of the story because we want people to buy the book. But it's, it, it, your focus seems to be human mess. Yeah. Yeah, it's all messy. Well, yeah, I mean, there's nothing deep about it. I mean, anybody listening or present who has siblings will be more than aware of how we, we often do not share stories. The broad strokes, perhaps, yeah. Do you remember when that happened? And then somebody takes over the story and you're listening to a version of the story that you didn't, you weren't there, mm. you know? There's somebody there who wasn't there and you're pretty sure, no, hang on, that was Auntie Mary, but she died the year before. And um, so she can't have been there. And I've learned over the years, not so much with siblings, but with anybody else, I've learned, well, relatively recently, just to keep my mouth shut and let people tell the story. I'm not, you know, we're, we're rarely talking about something vital here. So let them tell the story because actually it's their story as much as it's my story. And it's often about the words we choose to tell that story. So it struck me that this is, this is what always happens. I sit and I listen to a friend of mine telling somebody else something that happened to us 30 years ago, 35 years ago, and I'm listening to something that is not altogether as I recall it. It's not the same. Uh, it's in a different place, for example, maybe even a different country. Um, and they've embellished it in the way that we all do. And I would have embellished it differently, but which one of us is telling the truth? You know, so it is a bit of a mess in many, many ways. Yeah, and there is a, there is a confusion. Um, I remember years and years ago when I was a very young teacher, what a relief it was to say, when I was asked a question, what a relief it was to say, I don't know. <laughs> it just felt like a huge moment in my, I didn't have to spoof, I didn't have to lie. I just said, somebody, I can't remember what the question was. I said, I don't know, but I'll try and find out. And there was another, I don't know, what do you think it was about? And it led to a discussion. Maybe it was about English, maybe Shakespeare or something or other. And um, it was such a relief, you know? And I'm not advocating this as a philosophy or, a, you know, a, a lifestyle. But one of the things I like about the narrator, Davy is that I suspect I don't know is a big answer into a lot of his questions, that he's quite content to um, say, I don't know, or to admit, I don't know. And there's there's a, an episode in the book where he has, uh, I suppose you call it a, a health issue. And um, mm -hmm. at some levels, it might seem a bit unfinished because there, no, there are no neat answers as to how he ended up the way he is. Um, but it was just one of those, something uh, quite dramatic happened to him in a strange way, in a strange undramatic way. But um, as to what happened, why did that happen? I don't know, you know? So it's, um, yeah, it, there is confusion, there is mess. But one of the things those of us, you know, as we get older, we all do, um, and people we love uh, die or whatever, 
it's a mess, you know. The final years are a terrible mess. Well, but, I mean, there is, de there is death in the oh, book. The package, though, yeah. Yeah. These two, these two friends, they, um, in one of the pubs, they, they see a group of musicians, people from the College of Music, one of whom is um, a cello player uh, called Jessica, who is a character, but always a witnessed character yeah. and a very important character. And they, they have very interesting, very complementary, but also not exactly overlapping memories of their experience of, of this woman. At the same time, as they are unpacking their memories, you're also unpacking their lives subsequent to, mm -hmm. this, to this sort of young male experience. And what's very interesting is they were like Tweedledum and Tweedledee, as you said, they were inseparable. And then one leaves Ireland for reasons, Ireland's coldness, emotional coldness, and the support of a loving woman, and the other stays. And thereafter, their lives are siloed. I think you say Davy has only met Joe's wife twice. Yeah, yeah, something like in, that. Seen her in years. Yeah, even though they are such close friends, they have no knowledge of each other's lives. I, later lives. Yeah. I think it's important that the, the, the reason why the book is set in, the, in a pub or pubs as well is that I've been, the house I'm in at the moment, we've been living here for 16 years and my closest friends uh, have been in it maybe twice. Uh, we had a bit of do for my 50th birthday a long time ago and they came to have a look at it when we moved in. Yeah. We don't meet in each other's houses. We've no curiosity about each other's houses. Uh, and up until, you know, the pandemic started, we'd meet in the pub. That's men of my generation. That's, that's where we meet. That's our, you know, uh, not exactly home, but that's, uh, that's basically where we feel comfortable, you know. So, um, yeah, in, in many senses, uh, meet up with somebody, how are the kids, grand, the list, you know, I know vaguely the kids' names. Uh, out of school yet? Oh yeah, started college, you know, and um, promptly forget it. Yeah. And it's, it's not, it, I suppose it's not indifference as such. It's just the priorities seem to be a bit different. I don't know, they don't want to overstress the difference between men and women, although, you know, it's well worth doing that. But um, I know that anytime I'm in the company of women, they know much more about each other's friends. It seems to be that's part of the way they, they, they have their friendships, that they know much more. Whereas men, I think, certainly men of my generation, uh, we meet each other for ostensibly, at, at, at the front, we meet each other to talk about football, to talk about what's on the telly, to talk about politics, to talk about the state of the world. And somehow or other, as we do this, we get our emotional, we're fed emotionally as well, just being in the company of one another, you know. That is, I'm sure, uh, that is true, but it's also true that these two characters are incredibly, A, emotionally literate, not necessarily vociferous, but they are deeply literate, yeah. and B, they are both in their separate ways fixated on their inner life. 
in a healthy way. They are monitoring what they feel. And there's something, it's not often that one comes across a book that articulates male inarticulate articulacy. I think it's they, a novel, they, yeah. I think it's a they, novel because they are at their age. I think if they were younger men, it would probably be a short story. I'd like to think the younger men okay. would get to the point that bit quicker. But yeah, I think yeah. that's why it's such a difficult conversation for them is that they go past football. I don't think football gets much of a mention really, but they go past the gossip into, into deeper areas, into psychological areas. And that's why the conversation is almost in a loop. Joe in particular trying to explain, you know, without giving too much away, he's left his wife and family and he's trying to do it justice. You know, he's trying to avoid mm -hmm. the, the cliches. He hasn't run away with a younger woman. He hasn't, he, they're way too old for a midlife crisis anyway. Um, so it's different and he's trying to find a simile or a metaphor or some gathering of words that'll allow him to get to Davy just why it is this has happened. And it takes, right, it takes the entire book for, you know, for him to get there. And even as he gets there, it's not altogether certain he has got there, but he's had a good go at it. And he seems to me, they, they both seem to me on this evening a bit unusual in that they do let their guard down and they do want to get to the core of it and they do want to explain. But I even now, I read the book recently because I was doing the audio book and it was refreshing because I'd forgotten about it in many ways because I, I, I actually finished writing it two years ago. But I was quite shocked at how long it took before Davy told Joe his key piece of news. Hmm. You know, the reason why he was actually in Dublin. And that really, yeah. uh, I believe it, but it really did in a way shock me that it would take him that long to, uh, just to give him that piece of information. And in many ways, that's all it is. It's information. Now it's emotional information, but it's just, it's information. But yeah, it took him that long to get to it. I mean, partially it's, the book is concerned with people's, um, it's not their reluctance to disclose, but it's the sort of crab-like way that they go at the disclosure. Mm -hmm. They don't, they don't do it directly. They, they, they do it in a circumcutory way. But the yeah. other thing that the book is really engaged with is the strange and weird nature of truth. In the, the, there is a, a, a moment in it where um, Joe is talking about an experience he has at school with a, dropping his daughter off with another parent. And mm. his wife then appropriates the story, not maliciously, just, well, it's lying around, it's a piece of gold, I'll have that nugget, and, and tells it in his company without yeah. any, um, um, just straightforwardly, as something that has happened to her. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the book is, so the book is about the way in which we take other people's truths and make them our own. And yeah. we also don't know what our own truth is. Yeah. Joe doesn't really know what's happened to him, does he? No, he doesn't. Uh, no, he really doesn't. He doesn't know what happened. No more than Davy knows what happened to him, really, or why. Uh, he is as he is, this, this feeling of utter 
in many ways, redundancy or inadequacy that he seems to feel. Mm -hmm. And they don't know why. It just, um, it's, it's a point they've reached. Uh, Joe has done something about it, but he doesn't know why. And, he, and he, you know, they, they talk about this notion of no regrets. Of course he has regrets. You know, he, he, the way he speak, the way they speak generally about the three women in their lives, I think it explains to a degree why they are eventually quite open about themselves because they do really, really not just love these women, but they do, but they really, in a way, admire the women. Mm. And what, particularly the, the women that they've been married to, Trish and Faye, is that what comes across really strongly is what they love doing is listening to these women, you know? Uh, uh, Davy says early on in the book when he met Faye the day after he couldn't really have told you what colour her eyes were but he could hear her mm. you know mm. and I think in a way that's why um, they are eventually quite open but they, the story yeah I mean if you've got three people in a car and the car crashes and all three people manage to walk away within years you're going to hear three different stories Mm. Back within minutes, you're going to hear three different stories because it'll be three different experiences, even though it all happened at the same time. Mm. And um, I think, again, with siblings, with anybody, it, uh, I, I, I suppose I grew up, my mother was very precise when she was talking about her childhood and her memories. She was really, really precise. If you had asked her, you know, what did you have for your dinner on the 15th of October 1934, she'd have told me. Um, she'd have hesitated a while since she calculated what day of the week it was and then she'd have told me. And my father just, um, he, he made it up, you know, he, uh, and that was his truth. You know, he made it up. He added people, he, he, he gave conversations to people that, you know, the, I remember him, when I was doing a book about them, their, their memoir, Rory and Eta, and he was describing his birth. Mm -hmm. Oh! <laughs> I mean, granted, I, you know, granted, there's no doubt at all he was there, <laughs> but he was talking about his grand, his, about his father, and he's talking about things he couldn't possibly remember, you know, and it wasn't just that my mother told me or my father told me, he was there, you know, mm. whereas my mother would never have ever done that. She was a great raconteur, a great storyteller, but she would only have told you things that she remembered precisely, mm. and that was a different type of truth, you know, so... Yeah, Trish is a great storyteller and Joe sits back and he, it's just the greatest thing ever to witness this woman who he's shared his decades of his life with entertaining these people and looking at these people, looking at his wife telling the story and becoming the woman, you know, who's the subject of the story and the, 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 the joke of the story in a way. And... Um, it's only when their marriage is uh, no longer, if you like, a happy one that he actively realizes that somehow or other he's been pushed out of the story. Yes, she's stolen it from him. Yeah. She, yeah. Just, you know, she got into the passenger seat of the car and she wasn't there at all. And somehow or other she got the driver's seat open, shoved him out and she took over the car. So he's kind of lying on the road. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. But that's... That, you know, it happens all the time. Uh, you know, recently uh, I, I, I witnessed a, quite a dramatic episode with somebody else. And as I told the story and the other person told the story, I realized it was very quickly becoming two different stories. Yeah. 
But there are other things in the book that are very categorical. So Faye, who marries Davy, David, both find Ireland to be a cold house. Yeah. Yes, they, literally, yes. literally. Yeah. They, I mean, they, they, they form a unit and they go. And when I was reading that part, I thought to myself, it's very interesting. You don't get in the number of Irish people who've gone to England is gigantic. It's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Very rarely appears in fiction. People go to America. You get a little bit, John McGarren, Hearts of Oak, Bellies of Brass. That's, yeah. you know, guys going to Kensal Rise and working on the buildings. But mm -hmm. Dave is a different kind of Irish person going to England, much more typical. He has a good life. He's, he's a, you know, he, he does well. Yeah, he's doing all right, yeah. Deliberately didn't want to go into too much detail about that, but clearly they're okay. They've, there are two cars outside the house. Yeah. Sometimes it, it's, it's the, the decisions come from nowhere other than uh, something whimsical almost. Um, just before, or perhaps while I was writing the book, myself and my wife walked the Ridgeway in Wiltshire. <laughs> right. Right. So we'd walk all day and then into a village and uh, stay, I think it was about three nights in a row in a pub. And there was one, I think it was a Saturday, we finished, you know, the walk and walked down into Wantage. And, uh, you know, I saw that, I saw it coming on the map. I love maps, you know, and I saw, oh, the day after tomorrow, we're staying in a place called Wantage. And uh, I just liked, I liked the sound of the name. And we walked into Wantage and we'd made a rule uh, that we would stop at the first pub we came to, no matter, you know. And when, you're in, when you walk into a village and there's only one pub, it's, a, <laughs> it's, you know, it's an easy decision. But as we walked into Wantage, we came to a roundabout. And I suppose the hint should have been that we're like a German shepherd tied to a table outside the, <laughs> outside the pub. So it might have been a good idea to keep walking, but we didn't. And we went into that place and came out later looking for the B&B &B we were staying in. And we realized, you know, I was looking around and realizing that in the space of two minutes, you've gone from um, German shepherds tied to tables to rather quite an opulent place. And I thought, this is interesting, you know. So we just, we just spent one day there, but it stuck with me a bit. Um, I think maybe because I was in a town that was, you know, that had more than one street for the first time in a week and it seemed quite noisy and it seemed full of life. I just thought, yeah, I'll, I'll plant my character here. Mm. Uh, and it, it, it was never going to be a big thing, but I know that, for example, when I was teaching in the 80s and the, the young people I was teaching, some of them were just, they were emigrating almost immediately. It was to England, virtually all of them went, you know. Mm. They weren't going to America. Now, some of them did go to America and some of them went further. Um, but the bulk of them were going to England, mm. you know, and uh, that struck me, you know. Um, so it never occurred to me for this particular book to send them anywhere else. Uh, I'm, I heard you say that you love maps. I too love maps. Um, in fact, I have to write with a map. If, yeah. I'm, if I'm in a place, I need to know, you know, I need to know my way around it. Uh -huh. And... The same kind of specificity also applies to the 
trajectory of their lives and the way they've become more prosperous and the way that the city of Dublin, which has created them, has also become more prosperous. Mm -hmm. But the book, for the most part, is built out of what people say or remember. Davy gives you some, he, he tells you things that he knows. He, 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 yeah, he articulates, he summarizes. There's very, very, there are, yeah, you know, there, there are some objective descriptions, but they are few and far between. It's all built out of interiority. Mm-hmm. It's all built out of what comes out of human beings. It's all words. Yeah. And yet, it's the words that people say, and yet, it's such a specific book. I mean, quite often when I read books, I think to myself, I've met this full stop before. Jesus Christ, I've met this, you know, because I think to myself, someone, they've gone, the writer's gone to a literary B&Q and just bought all this stuff and bolted it together. And there's, as a reader, you're, there's a sense of familiarity. Whereas when I read this book, there wasn't a full stop I hadn't met before. And yet, everything, as I'm reading it, I'm going, bloody hell, that is absolutely true. I, absolutely. I, the party that they go to where they see Jessica playing the cello, for instance, the beer in the, in the bath and the little boy handing out the beer and the confusion and they don't, all of that, fantastic. I think, yeah, I know that. There's a little story where Joe thinks he's lost his wedding ring. Yeah. But it's on his finger. (laughs) It's there the whole time. And you think, yeah, people get into a hissy fit of anxiety and they can't see what's in front of them. Well, the reason I think that one works is that I was, you know, I was writing that story and I didn't know how it was going to end. It's not based on anything that occurred to me, or I don't remember being told that particular story. But for some reason, as is often the case, I started them on this story. So he's telling the story. And uh, I think I was several days writing the story because, you know, there's, there's more than just him talking. And, it was delay- and, you know, inevitably, a first draft of anything I do is much, much longer than the final book. But um, I didn't know how he was going to end the story. And then it struck me, yeah, that's the way to... Yeah, because... There's no story at all. No. Um, well, we, we often find the car keys we've searched all day for in our pocket. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. That's, that's what human beings yeah. are like. Yeah. Are, yeah. They, are they going to go on being friends, do you think, Joe and Davy? Well, at one level, you know, the thing is, I, I'm kind of strict with myself and that I don't think of the characters outside the book, but I think there's a sense, certainly because he's the narrator, Davy is very aware that there are moments in the evening when he's thinking to himself, this is the last time I'm ever going to meet this man, mm. you know? And at points, I don't even, he doesn't even like him, you know? He doesn't know why he's there in the first place. But because of what they've been through that evening, and it's not just that evening because it's a kind of, it's uh, lit up lights that are, that are 40 years old. I mm. think, yes, they will uh, keep in touch, yeah. And that now, uh, as, as is the case, say, 
I told you recently that I, I just, you know, about three quarters of an hour ago that I grew up four miles down the road. Um, up until recently, there was a good reason why I'd have gone down there regularly because my mother was there, but she's no longer there. So that's a light gone off. So I still go there for different reasons, but it happens all the time. So, you know, Joe, why would he come to Dublin? Uh, at least Davy, he's, he's no intention and he knows that Faye does not want to return to Ireland to live. So it, it, basically their home is England. And, um, but will he return to Dublin? Uh, I think during the book he says he likes coming back and being reminded that he's a Dubliner. He takes words out of his case when he gets home, out of his bag, along with his toothbrush, words that he doesn't use in England and rhythms that he doesn't use in England. And he likes putting them back on, so to speak, you know, before he leaves the house. So I think that in itself would be excuse enough for him to come back to Dublin. But I think something very, very special has happened between the two men. Something really very, very special has happened um, that will draw them together. Uh, I suspect Davy would be the one who will come to Dublin as opposed to Joe going across to England. I suspect mm -hmm. it's, it's not, Joe, it would never occur to Joe that it might be his turn. Mm -hmm. And he really has no curiosity about England whatsoever. Mm -hmm. They have quite a lot of um, baggage. Uh -huh. And Davy probably has more to complain about. There's the whole, the little mag sub-story. Because Joe has, Joe's a bit of a, he's a bit of a blowhard. He's a bit of a, he's a bit domineering. Is that um, fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. But, I mean, when you're with him, when you, when you, when you watch the politics of a group of people, even if the group is two, there's always the dominant one. Mm. There'll always be the dominant one. Uh, and he is, he is the dominant one. And I think it's taken Davy a while to recognize that. And in a way he resents it. But I think what, what perhaps happens or what would happen as well is that he'd realize, well, none of this would have happened if it, if it had been the other way around. You know? Mm. So it's, it, he, he kind of, again, accepts the mess. But uh, yeah, he would... You know, the, the reason why they eventually, you know, they're, they're at opposite ends of the pub, adoring this woman from afar. And the reason why they, they don't even know her name, but the reason why they literally get a little bit closer to her is because Joe gets down off the stool, grabs his jacket and his pint and moves up closer mm -hmm. to the end of the pub. And Davy follows him. Yeah. And it wouldn't have happened the other way around. No. You know, so there's, always, there's always a dominant one in some sense, in a, in a way, and often it suits both down to the ground, you know, but you'll often, it's why comedy pairings like, you know, Morecambe and Wise and, you know, Laurel and Hardy, it's, it's why they work, because they're recognisable. Was there something that triggered you to write this book? There were a couple of things. Um, certainly... The way the book went, I've never planned a novel in my life. I always sit and I start. You know, sometimes the planning isn't necessary. The first one, the commitments, it was about a bunch of people forming a band and I knew the band was going to break up and that's as much of a plan as I needed when I started. And the snapper again was a relatively easy one, a young woman who's pregnant and I knew she was going to have the baby at the end of the book and the baby was going to be fine, you know. Mm -hmm. But there are 
sometimes it's a reasonably straight line. This case, I had the men talking and I had them getting deeper into the evening, but I didn't really know why or how or what. But then uh, my mother fell ill and I put it aside while my siblings and myself looked after her in the last months of her life or tried to really. And she was at home up until the last week and then she went into the local hospice. And um, some weeks after she died, when I was getting back to work and thinking, where am I going to bring this book? And without giving too much away, the hospice seemed to be such a strangely wonderful place because, you know, given, you know, it's not a happy place, you know, but it's, there's something, I've only been in the one, but I've been there twice. And there's something about it. There's something so brilliant about it insofar as you can just sit and uh, say goodbye to your loved one and all the anxieties are lifted, you know? And it struck me that this was a good place to send the two characters. So that, that was, I suppose as well, I was harnessing my grief or whatever. Mm -hmm. But as my mother fell ill, one of my closest friends also was diagnosed with a brain tumor and his decline was so rapid it's still a shock. And he died a month and a half after my mother died. And that's where the, in a, lot, a lot of the emotional energy went into, because I, the book isn't autobiographical in any sense, but I can, you know, I can, I can still feel my friend sitting in the stool beside me with our elbows on the bar as 21 year old men, mm. you know, uh, discovering Dublin. And, mm. um, so I think that's where a lot of the energy came from. So it didn't start off the book because he was healthy and well when I started the book, but it certainly drove it on, I think, and gave it, um, I wrote it really quickly. I wrote the, you know, having started again in March, I was finished in July and I spent much longer editing the thing than I did writing the thing. And that's usually the other way around. And it's because I think, uh, I was so frantic to get back to work in many ways, but it, 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 it harnessed, as I said, it harnessed the grief, the energy, the strange energy that, that well, grief is a different experience every time. So that's what, that's what gave it, if you like, that was the battery, I think, that got me to the end. Mm -hmm. The initial spark was a, a strange one. Um, at the beginning of the book, Joe tells Davy about seeing this woman that they both, both knew when they were very young men and seeing her from a distance and then gradually, and she seemed to be exactly the same as she had been. And then gradually as she got nearer and nearer, it was like the age was added to her and she became uh, a 60 year old woman in front of him there and then. And I had a strange similar experience, not with a woman I ever knew, but um, it was a, a young woman I used to teach and it was, um, saw her from a distance and I hadn't seen her since so early 80s. And I thought that's such and such. And uh, she looked exactly the same. You know, the 18 year old kid I'd said goodbye to uh, mm. when she left school. And uh, then, you know, there were other people around and gradually then when she, she came up closer to me because I was staying where I was and she was coming down a corridor and got closer. I realized, oh, she's actually in her mid-40s. She would have been at least in her mid-40s. 
I can't remember what I, my age was. We, there wouldn't have been that big of an age difference because I would have been 24, I think, when mm -hmm. that she would have been sort of been a six-year age gap or whatever. But suddenly it was a middle-aged woman in front of me. And yet it was the same woman. And it was like um, a special effect somehow. And we were both laughing, you know. So I thought, well, that's interesting. And I put it, I, if you like, as an image or as a way to start a story, I kind of put it behind the ear like the cigarette that I don't smoke. <laughs> <laughs> it stayed there for about six or seven years before I used it. But it's always struck me as being, I didn't know what I'd do with it, but I just thought, well, that's a way to get a character right back you know yeah. and um so that's how i started yeah i mean i'm older than you but um if i see a friend that i was at school with i am aware of the passage of time mm -hmm. but if i hear them no time has elapsed at all <laughs> the voice uh -huh. is so still the voice and we're, it, that, that seems to me to represent exactly what you're talking about one is simultaneously 40 years away mm -hmm. and four minutes away yeah and it's the doubleness that makes life so interesting and it's the doubleness jessica as the young musical musician music student and as a as a mother in a and school actually. and a grandmother mm -hmm. it, that is Part, also part of the energy of your book yeah um we've been well we've done an hour have we we've done a yeah you've right. been a genius <laughs> brilliant you're a good um, yeah you lulled me into a false sense of security there <laughs> well can i just say first of all to people who are inclined to read i would recommend you read love Thank by you. Roddy Doyle and it offers the rare pleasure of narrative which is huge it stretches over 40 years and at the same time it's incredibly uh, condensed because it there's a there's another separate narrative it occurs just in the course of a night mm -hmm. um, as people drink and talk and talk and drink um, Thank you very, very much for, for joining us. Thank you, and, Carlo. I hope we can actually meet yeah. fully soon. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fantastic. I hope the gods smile. Good luck, sir. <laughs> and to you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes. Thank you.